Well, it's good, uh, good to be here. You know, one of the funny things about speaking at uh, different churches is that the two lead pastors, we just take a moment just to pat each other on the back. They compliment me, I compliment him. But one of the great things about this opportunity is that whatever I say about Jason and citizens uh, is completely true and factual. You know, before I read the passage, I just want to say thank you. And then if you're visiting here at Citizens, there's no better church really to be a part of and to be part of a community. Um, Citizens, the church itself, as an outsider, I've been a big admirer. It was that church that was known to be relevant, authentic, hipster, cool, um, just had the best looking people, the best dressed people, and being here today, absolutely true. But also, more importantly, that could be all smoke and mirrors until you meet the people. And from what I've been told in my experience meeting leaders here today, there's something more than just the facade of citizens. There's something that, in my impression, has a lot of true gospel grit. There's a warmth, there's a welcoming, there's an intentionality and a ministry about this church that's really exciting. And so I'm so thankful for citizens to be able to partner, praying for your church, and have been for the past 18 months since I got closer to Jason. And Jason, if I could just say a few words about this brother, and as we mentioned, just an incredibly gifted. He doesn't know this, but when I first heard about Jason, we were both on the East Coast. He was up all in the music scene in the tri-state area. He had a reputation that preceded him, that he was just phenomenally gifted. I was at a wedding in New York. He didn't know this, but he, I was at a wedding in New York, and he was actually doing the, the special song. And it was a rendition of an Eric Clapton song. And I thought, this thing is brilliant. Who is this guy? He is absolutely amazing. And then I fast forward about 12 years, and a dear missionary friend of mine was visiting and worshiping with citizens, and he came back and he said, I just heard one of the best messages on a Sunday worship service. Do you know a guy named Jason Min? I was like, yeah, I know him. He's already well-known, and he's just a very gifted guy. And most importantly, perhaps, as I got to know him through our cohort, he's just deeply loving and pastoral. Um, he's, he's just so sharp and he's bright, and that's all to say that with the leadership here, Citizens is a well-loved, well-shepherded, and well-taught church, and it is my honor and privilege to give you a downgraded sermon here today. Come back in two Sundays, and then you'll get back to the quality of what Citizens is used to. But with that said, let me read the passage for us. I'm going to read it from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Uh, Let me read that for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, this is God's word, starting with verse 4. Peter writes this to a bunch of churches that are scattered about, and he says this, As you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now 
you have received mercy. And this is the word of God for us today. Uh, when I was little, I used to spend a lot of time just building different houses. And uh, I used to build houses out of cards and then moved on and graduated to Legos. And I say that because uh, one of the realities of the culture that we live in is going to be just housing and residences and commercial real estate. And even what we see on Netflix and on different TV shows all have titles of their shows that are premised on this idea of a house. You know, I used to watch a show called uh, House of Cards. When I was little, I'm going to guess no one knows this show, I used to watch a show called Little House on the Prairie. Even this one, even if you go to the White House in D.C., there's a reason for its architecture. I read that it was to intimidate any foreign visitors and emissaries because its pillars were strong, it was grand, and it conveyed a sense of power and authority. So in other words, architecture in this building metaphor has really profound communication capabilities, and it helps you and I here today, as we understand ourselves to be a spiritual house, it helps us to understand who we are. It helps us to recognize what our purpose is. Now, you may be discovering and trying to figure out who you are, what you want to do. Now, LA is a great city. You're trying to discover yourself. But in one sense, the passage that I've read has given you exactly your reason for being and your place to belong. And so I want to look at this concept of a gospel spiritual house. Because if you're like me, you want a reason to be. You want a mission, a purpose for life. Why are you here? And you also want to have a place to belong, to have community that many of us through this pandemic and lockdown probably have struggled with in our various ways. And so looking at this passage, when Peter, this author, writes about a spiritual house, we're going to ask three questions about what does it mean to be a spiritual house? Three questions. One, we'll look at the foundation of it. What is the foundation? Secondly, how are the walls built? And then thirdly, what is the function of this house? Because every house has a different purpose and function. So we're going to look at the foundation of it, the walls of it, and the function of this spiritual house. So look at with me. First, let's consider the foundation of this building. Now in verse 4, Peter continues to talk about the identity of the people of God. And being a teacher, he uses these metaphors to help people understand who they are. And he used two metaphors in particular. He uses a culinary metaphor and then he also uses an architectural one. And I imagine if anybody knows these two realities, it would be urban people such as you who live in LA. You know food and you know architecture. And Peter, he wants to harbor on these two realities to help you to understand who you are as a people of God. When he says, taste and see that the Lord is good, right before the verses I've read, he's using a culinary metaphor. Your relationship with God is really good. And then he transitions to an architectural metaphor, a building. And he says, as you come to him, a living stone, which is the foundation of this house. That's what a living stone is. See, friends, in verses 6 to 8, Peter elaborates on this living stone. And he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah chapter 8. And in verse 6, when Peter says, you know, back in the Old Testament, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, when Peter quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah is speaking to the leaders of Israel, and he's saying, 
those who think that your city is safe from invasion, you're desperately wrong. The only building that will be saved from God's just and righteous condemnation will be God's house, the temple of God. And the reason that house is going to last is because it's built on the temple and the foundation of Jesus Christ. In other words, friends, this is the point. Peter spiritualizes this and tells us that the only building in Isaiah's time that's going to last is the building that's built on the sure foundation of the living stone. And Peter's point is this. Jesus Christ for you and I today is that living stone, that capstone, that foundational stone. Jesus was swept up into destruction and death on the cross, but death couldn't hold him, and in his resurrection, he became a living stone for us. Now, if you didn't notice this, living stone is an oxymoron because stone is inanimate, but the Bible says this is living, it's alive, it gives you a purpose and a reason for being. Jesus is that cornerstone for you and me. He's that capstone. He's our foundation. He's our reality. He's our life-giving sustenance. Now, if you're an architectural major, you would know, or what or you work in architecture, you know what a cornerstone is. It's a foundational stone. It's the major stone that's set in place in the temple in the Old Testament. And this stone had to be cut perfectly. And all other building stones were built around it. And so if the original stone was cut awkwardly or inaccurately, then it would lead to a building with walls that would be crooked or bent, and then eventually it would be a moment before the walls crumble and they break down. So the foundation stone is that living stone. It is that first stone that is the foundation of any building and house. Now, here's why Peter is so brilliant, friends. I don't have to tell you that the foundation of the house will determine the kind of purpose of the house. So the foundation of a residence is different from the foundation of a condominium in West Hollywood, which is going to be different from the foundation of the Grand Wilshire building, the tower that's like 30 stories or more. That's what we see. But Peter is saying this, for you and me, we also in our lives have a spiritual living stone. And if you have your life built on the wrong living stone, the wrong capstone, the wrong cornerstone, your life will crumble. And if you build your life on the true living stone of Jesus, your life will thrive. Let me try to make my case here. You can embrace Jesus as the foundation of your life, your cornerstone, or you could reject him and build your life on a different living stone. That's what we see in verses 7 to 8. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stumbling block for some and a rock of offense. And Jesus is someone that you can either build your life on or you can reject him. And if you build your life on Christ, then you could work through all the important realities of this world. You could figure out the economy, you could figure out foreign affairs, you could find self-satisfaction, self-worth. But if you build your life on a different living stone, money, love, sex, politics, power, all good things in themselves, but if you, it's not meant to be your living stone, but if you build your life on those realities and say, my career, my success, my academic achievements, my purchasing power, the number of followers on my TikTok or Instagram, the number of people that love me and say I'm beautiful, if that's the source of your life and your living stone, you're going to crumble. That's why it's relevant to you and me. That's why this, this metaphor is the foundation of your life and mine. Now, there's these two socialists, sociologists, and philosophers, Philip Reef and Charles Taylor. They say that in our culture today, you may have heard this sort of idea called expressive individualism. 
And that's where they're trying to say, in our culture today, you and I, there's been a shift for some time. Whereas generations in the past, there is something that was intrinsic and innate to humanity that automatically gave us a purpose and reason for being. We didn't have to discover it. Sure, you're individuals and you can figure out your individual life, but the purpose of humanity was already innate, intrinsic, and given to us from outside of ourselves. But over time, Philip Reef and Charles Taylor come up with this concept and say there's a shift, and there are reasons for this, that no longer is a purpose and identity something given to us or intrinsic to our basic humanity, but it's now something we have to discover ourselves. In other words, your reason for being in the past came from outside. But now, in this day and age, your reason for being and your purpose comes from the inside. You have to discover who you are. And that's why we say to each other, be true to who you are. You be you. Become all that you be. Follow your heart. They say this idea has been you know, capitalized by Disney because every Disney movie is really about the main character discovering and manufacturing and developing an identity for herself or himself. And that's basically what we have today. You're thinking, I need to make something of myself. I need to be someone. I need to be a somebody. And you want to develop an identity from the inside out. But what Peter's here to say to you gently is this. It's not going to work. It'll work for a moment, but you'll crumble because there's something that's been given outside of you to determine your identity already. You're a spiritual house, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're God's children, you're his house, built on the living stone of Jesus Christ. In other words, the cornerstone that you build your life on will set the trajectory of your life. So if you build it on Jesus, you'll become more like Christ. But if you build it on something else, then your life will take a different flavor. N.T. Wright, this New Testament scholar, has once said, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also to the outside world. What you worship, you will become. So for example, if you worship money, you're just living a life to be rich, to have a high purchasing power, you'll define yourself in dollars and net worth, and you'll view people as creditors, debitors, or people who are customers, if you follow and worship the capstone of money. As Kenneth Copeland, this one pastor said, Jesus is your banker. If you worship love, if love is your living stone, you build your life on love, relationships and romance, you'll define yourself in beauty, preferences, fashion, how many people love you, follow you, like you, and are admirers of you. You view people as objects and fans and admirers and worshipers. If you worship power and success, if that's the cornerstone that you're building your life upon, you'll define yourself in terms of how many people listen to you, how much influence you have. You view people as collaborators, competitors, or basically pawns to get your way because you worship power. What you worship, you'll build your life upon. But if you build your life on Jesus, the living stone that will be the house in which destruction cannot take away. If you build your house on the capstone of Christ, then and only then you will have a life in which you will be confident yet humble, humble yet confident. If you build it on Christ, you could take criticisms but respond in love. You could have a self-satisfaction, a relevance, an authenticity that you can't find out in the world because you could be truly free with all the vulnerability and brokenness of your life but truly accepted by the people around you in the spiritual house. You'll have a place to belong but also a place to be fully known and accepted and loved something that money, power, sex can never give you. 
So if you take a moment to reflect upon your life, are you building your life on the capstone of Jesus Christ or in something else in this world that is really good? The second point, what are the walls of this building? The walls of it. Well, read with me verse 5. It says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's talking about the walls being built up as a royal priesthood. You yourselves are like living stones. Peter says when you come to a living stone, you will be like the living stone itself. You'll become like Jesus because you're building your life on him. And in verse 5, Christians are the stones that are laid together to build the walls of the church. Now, here's the point. The walls that are being built here, which we so desperately need, Peter's point is this. What we have here is a clear, deep, relevant, intimate picture of community. This picture of being stones built up like a wall. William Barclay, this historian, once said, a visiting king to Sparta said, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? And the Spartan king said, these are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. That's what Peter is saying. This wonderful scholar by the name of Karen Jobs has says, the image of living house speaks to unity, significance, purpose of all believers. It's essential to Christian self-understanding. If you're part of this wall, this community, you're a stone built around other stones. It gives you unity, intimacy, safety, and identity. Now, as I once heard it said, in the West, individualistic cultures like us, our identity and our self-identification always begin with I statements. I'm this, I achieve this, I like this, I don't like that. But in other cultures, most other cultures, identity statements begin with we statements a community. That's why even in the Bible, the Israelites define Jesus not as a person in himself, but they say Jesus is Joseph's son. He's a carpenter's son. So when Peter comes to a self-understanding, he's basically saying, when you want to figure out this deep community and your self-understanding, the question Peter wants you to ask is not, who am I? He wants you to ask, whose am I? Who owns me? Not what do I own, but who owns me? Where do I belong? Who is my God? Who are my people? Where is my community? Even as Bob Dylan once said, you got to serve somebody because somebody owns you. You're a master of no one and somebody owns you. So the question isn't who am I, but whose am I? And Peter's ultimate answer is that you belong to one another. As a living wall, stones built around each other. Many of you may know this guy by the name of Desmond Tutu. He captures this idea of a living wall when he says, in his own vernacular and culture, which is essentially the same point, it is to say, my humanity is caught up, inextricably bound up in yours. We belong in a bundle of life. We say a person is a person through other persons. It's not, I think, therefore I am. It's rather, I am human because I belong. I participate and I share. And you may be finding community anywhere. You can find it at work, you can find it hanging out at clubs or at restaurants, whatever it may be, and all those are fine. It's perfect, but it won't give you what the living wall of this temple will give you, this identity, unity, self-understanding, a place to be vulnerable and open, but yet fully accepted and loved. Do you know what practically this living stone means when I stretch out the application? This is what it looks like to kind of make it a little bit more practical. Imagine yourself as a building stone. That means there's stones beside you, stones above you, and stones below you. 
Now that basically means in this community, the stones below you, that means there are some people that you have to depend upon. You gotta be open, they need your, you need their help. So you open up your heart, you open up your resources, you open up your life because you're on top of people below you because you're dependent upon them. But it also means there's stones above you. That means people are depending upon you. You're sustaining their weight. People look to you for help. People look to you for friendship, for prayer, to get a late night drink or coffee or to talk on the phone or to text. People need you to help for the practicalities of their lives. But you know what? There's stones to the left and right of you. That means you're doing community together. You're side by side, looking ahead in life, and we're doing life together. And that's a picture of real community, and that's something for you to consider. If you want purpose and identity in this life, are there people who are below you that you are depending upon? Are there people above you who depend on you? And are there people side by side where you're living life together as you move forward? That's the application and the point of what Peter is trying to say. This is all possible, friends, because Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, the foundation of this unity. That's why our commonality in Jesus Christ far transcends our differences, our preferences, our life stage, cultures, ethnicity, and politics. Christianity offers something entirely unique because Jesus Christ can transcend, is above all other realities of this life, all other realities which are really good. The gospel allows us to celebrate our differences and yet, a gospel is a safeguard so that we don't idolize our differences. The gospel can transcend us so that we can say, hey, you're extroverted, I'm introverted. You're outgoing, I'm, ingoing, uh, I'm introverted. I'm not outgoing. You're artistic, I'm more mathematical. No, you're from a different culture that thinks about life and work differently. You actually have a different career, tra career trajectory. You had a different life than me. You came from a broken family. I came from a nice family, but yet I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. The gospel allows you to accept everyone and to celebrate and learn. And yet the gospel says, if your foundation is Jesus, you won't idolize any differences that you have. Oh, you went to a better school and your resume is a little bit better, or you have a better career, or you have a business card that has a lot of acronyms that follow your name because you have designations and a great company that you work for. Now, I always say this in almost every church I speak, especially sophisticated urban cultures. I say sometimes when you exchange your business card, people are exchanging their identities. This is how much I'm worth. This is my firm, CPA, MD, PhD, whatever it is. This is how much I'm worth. How much are you worth? And you have a transaction of identities because you're trying to size each other up. The gospel gets rid of all that. The gospel may say, well, on the world's basis, I don't have a resume. I don't have a business card. And the other guy gives you one of the most impressive ones. But you know what? There's no insecurity. There's no judgment. There's no pride. There's just a love and community acceptance if your walls are built on the living stone of Jesus. So where do you fit in, friends? Where is your home? See, some of you are building yourselves as a stone, but you're building it on the wrong wall, on the wrong foundation. You know, you may be, maybe this is the East Coast side of me, you know, you may be building it on the investment bank. You know, that was my past life about 12 years ago, building on the foundation of money and power, influence on the markets. Maybe you're building it on these technologies on crypto. Maybe you're building it on fashion and your looks. By the way, all these things are really good. God created them, you should celebrate those, but you don't build your life on it. But in verse five, when it says you're a spiritual house with walls being built up, that Greek word is oikos, and that spiritual house implies relationship and family. 
And the only place you could truly get that if you build your living stone in Jesus Christ in the walls of a church, a spiritual house. It doesn't mean you can't participate in other realities, but your self-understanding and ultimate purpose is a living stone in God's church. There's this uh, Harvard graduate architect, Kyle Dugdale. He's a Christian, and he had an architectural thesis tracing architecture in the Bible. And I don't know if it was biblical or not, but I thought it was at least brilliant and creative. And he said this. In his thesis, he says, ever since humanity was forced to leave the Garden of Eden back in Genesis, we have been busy constructing different buildings in our lives. It is in some sense an attempt to replace the sense of being lost and not at home in the Garden of Eden. What is he saying? I quote, Architecture has struggled to mitigate the effects of sin in the fall. The city is a poor substitute for the Garden of Eden. Architecture performs at best the role of a fig leaf, covering our humanity's exposure, our loneliness, our lostness. In the end, it is perhaps not so much a cure as is an expression of humanity's homesickness that any other building beside the spiritual house will just be a reminder your place is not home. No, Billy Graham once said, heaven is my home, I'm passing along through this place. And he's saying, we got a taste of that in the Garden of Eden. And once sin entered the world, it's basically humans building different buildings and constructions, trying to replace what we had back then, but we'll never do it. It's just a reminder that we're lost, we're homeless, and we have a sense that can only be filled when Jesus Christ comes and takes us back. Lastly, what is the function of this house? What are you supposed to do? Well, yeah, you have community, but what do we do out there for the world? I love the fact that Jason led us into prayer in light of the tragedies that we've seen and all the complications in Afghanistan and Haiti. But what do we do as a church? Well, the function of this gives us a clue. A couple of verses. First, verse 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verses 9 to 10, it says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is harboring on is this. First, he's saying, you are exiles and aliens. You are someone who is actually passing along through this world. Heaven is your home. You're an exile anywhere in this home. Don't camp out. Now, this one counselor, Paul Tripp, gives a wonderful illustration. He says when he took his family camping, it was fun. But after a couple of days, he's dying to get home. He wants his hot bath, the comfort of his own bed, the comfort of his own food. Camping was good, but it was not his home. And he says that's the metaphor for Peter. We're supposed to be camping out in this world, and we're eager to go to heaven, which is our home. The problem is that some of us, when we camp, we don't rough it. You know, there's glamping. You know, you come out and you have this nice tent, you know, you have cable TV, you have a, a bed that's the same that you get at a four-star hotel. So when you come into camping, you're like, I never want to leave this place. It's wonderful. You never want to go home. And Peter's saying, as resident aliens, this world is good. Enjoy it. Engage in it. But don't camp out as if it's your home. You got to get back and set heaven as the centerpiece of your life. That's what he says. So what's the function of this house? Well, I'll just give you two really quickly. In verses 9 to 10, Peter says, 
because you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, because you're like this, there's, for you grammarians out there, school teachers, what, you know, linguists, in verses 9 it says, you're like this, that you may purpose clause, proclaim the excellencies of him. So Peter's saying God chose you, he made you his own, so that you can share the gospel. So you evangelize in this world, you show through your character who your living stone is. Proclaim the excellencies. But a second thing that you do, you act as a priest. Now, it doesn't mean that you go up and get that white collar and you go around trying to act all holy. A priest is basically someone who intercedes on behalf of someone else. So in other words, if you're building your life on Jesus as a royal house, what you're supposed to do is priest one another. Now, you pray for one another. You help each other out. You listen to one another. You're there for each other. You priest one another. Now, maybe this is a silly example. Uh, it always comes to mind. When I was about eight years old, I was living, and I have an older brother and sister, I was living in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And my parents went out to church, and they told me, my brother and sister, the three of us, mom and dad are going to be away. Whatever you do, don't run in the house. And so when they left, what did we do? We started chasing each other, and we started running out of the house. And I remember my, uh, my sister made my brother upset, and so my brother was chasing my sister around the corner. I thought it was really funny, so I was following along. As we turned the corner, we hit this table. My mom's favorite vase was tipping over, and I swear it looked like life went into slow motion. It was slowly falling on, and then it hit the ground, and then it shattered. And at that very moment, we heard the garage door coming up and my parents were coming in back from church. So we didn't know what to do, we were scared, so we went into the bedroom and we tried to hide. So I went into the closet, my sister went under the bed, my brother had nowhere to go, so he just went into the corner of the room expecting no one to see him. Parents came up, it felt that steps one by one were creaking, we're scared, we're nervous, and all of a sudden my dad was angry and says, what in the world is this? And then he goes into the room and he sees my brother and he says, what did you do? And he's like in the corner. And he says, it wasn't me, it was, it was Karen, my sister. And she comes out from under the bed. And he said, no, it wasn't me, it was William. He I come out of the closet. And we're all just blame shifting. It's basically the Garden of Eden. When God comes up and he says, no, you gave me the wife. And the wife says, no, it's Satan that did this to me. And my dad, you know, if you just know first generation Asian Americans, they are strong, they are strict. He was ready to give us a really bad beat down. You know, you probably can't do this in this day and age. You get reported. But he was that angry until my mom interceded. And she stood in the middle between us and then calmed my dad down and said, it was a mistake. It was my favorite vase. What was a mistake? Let's just relax, calm down, and talk about it later. What did she do there? She priested us. She interceded. And in a bigger picture, you can do that for the world. Afghanistan, Haiti, you can do that for each other. You pray to God, you intercede, ask more for God's grace, his wisdom, his power, his sustenance, as you priest one another as a spiritual house. Let me end with this. One of the biggest pictures we see of this idea of a priest comes to us in Genesis chapter 18. And if you never read the Bible, that's okay. I'm going to summarize the story. There's a city called Sodom. There's all kinds of sexual sin there. There's all kinds of abominations there. And God said, because they are so bad, I'm going to destroy them. And then you have this wonderful guy named Abraham. Abraham loves his people, so he acts like a priest and he intercedes on behalf of Sodom. And it's a wonderful story in Genesis 18. You see Abraham talking to God and Abraham looks at Sodom, 
And he's basically, you get a principle of the gospel here as Abraham talks to God. Why is there a principle of the gospel? Because he's saying this. Abraham may be thinking, looking at Sodom, God wanting to destroy it. He's saying, if the sin of the few can bring about the damnation of the many, Abraham's thinking, maybe, maybe it's possible it works the other way, that the righteousness of the few can bring about the blessing of the many. Does that make sense? So he's like, oh, let's see if it works out. So he goes to God and says, God, if there are 50 righteous people, would you spare the city of Sodom? And he sees something wonderful about the character of God. No, God, omnipotent, he knows everything. He's so patient with Abraham. And he, I, I don't know what he says exactly, but I would imagine God being like, sure, for 50, Abraham, sure, why not? 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city of Sodom. So then Abraham, you know, he's figuring this out, and he's like, maybe I could press it a little bit further. God, if there's 45 righteous people, would you spare Sodom? God said, for 45, I'll spare Sodom. And then he's almost like he's an auctioneer, and he was like, okay, 40. Do I get 30? How about 20? God, what about 10 people? If there are 10 righteous people in Sodom, God, would you spare the city of Sodom? And God said, for 10 righteous people? Yeah, I'll do it. I'll spare the city of Sodom. It was almost like a gentleman's agreement. They shake hands, and then they walk away, and then what happens in the next chapter? God destroys the city of Sodom. Why? Because there's not one righteous person in Sodom, including Abraham, who was not righteous enough. He wasn't good enough to intercede on behalf of people's sins. And it points to us to the true and greater prophet, the true and greater priest, one who is able to intercede not just for Sodom, but for the entire world, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus, who took your sin and mine. He took all your brokenness, all your, all your sins, all your past sexual sins, all your gambling addiction, your alcoholism, your idolatry of money, your pride, your gossip. He takes all of that upon himself, and he intercedes perfectly, and he says to God the Father, I'm going to take their sin upon me because I love them, and you sent me into this world. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did this on behalf of you and me. That's why he's our living stone. That's why if we build our lives on him because he gave his life to us, we could have a taste of heaven and a coherence, a calmness, a safety and security that no other living stone in this world could ever offer you. Because no other living stone in this world, money, power, sex, relationships, died for you and loved you and took your sin upon itself. Only Jesus Christ could do that. So brothers and sisters, citizens, realize that name is brilliant. I'm not sure why you chose that name. There's so many ways to think about it. It shows that you are relevant in this city, but also it may point to the fact that ultimately you are citizens of heaven. Came here to be priesting one another in the world. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you so much. <clears throat> We were a lost people, we were broken, we were hurt. We have so many idolatries and sins and insecurities. We build our lives on things which are good, but we build our lives in such a way that we think they're ultimate. Lord, forgive us and help us to turn back to Christ who loved us, who is our perfect priest and interceded for us on the cross and gave us life and reconciliation and hope and safety and security. Thank you that Jesus Christ is our living stone our capstone, our cornerstone. We can build our lives on him and only him. We thank you so much, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.